And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hello, welcome to the Sustainability Story Podcast. I'm today's host, Andres Benelli, uh, Chief uh, Economist at CFA Institute. We are recording live from New York City at the CFA Climate Conference. And in today's episode, we feature Spencer Glendon, the founder of Probable Futures, a nonprofit organization that aims to make climate science more accessible to everyone. Dr. Glendon has um, a varied and interesting uh, background. Um, he's a leading expert on climate change. He has a background in finance and economics, having worked as an analyst for many years uh, at Wellington Asset Management. He also has a PhD in economics from Harvard uh, University and recently has been welcomed by the Harvard Business School as a researcher um, in-house. Uh, so um, join us in welcoming Dr. Um, Glendon. You bring such a, an interesting and varied perspective to, to all this and your professional history encompasses uh, asset management, um, encompasses economics, um, and you're increasingly into the nonprofit sector trying to influence the conversation on, on the intersection of the environmental issues of the day um, and um, trying to help people understand climate literacy. So what do you mean by climate literacy? Sure. So uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you. And so climate literacy, I'll go back a few years. We may wind up going back further, but I'll go back a few years to when we started this initiative that is called Probable Futures. I had this awareness that climate was maybe important. I didn't know how. I didn't know how it fit in. I was working in finance um, in research capacity, uh, both conducting and overseeing research. And I was interested in topics that weren't part of orthodox finance. The firm I worked at, Wellington Management, had all the parts of orthodox finance well covered. There were analysts for each segment, experts, and I was interested in the topics that lay outside of the narrow slices. And so climate change fit the bill for that. And so I just started reading old journal articles from the 70s and 80s to say, well, what was the origin of this science? And what I discovered were these models that explained how the physical world worked that I had never understood. I didn't know all these things about the world I lived in. And what I realized is I know, I knew a lot about economics. I was actually first an engineer. I knew a lot about business. 
I've never really thought about the physical world as being part of all of those questions. And if you walked around finance in the 21st century, it was done on computers. You'd have meetings with people, but it was either in a conference room or in two dimensions. And the idea that I needed to sort of become re-aware of the physical world, which I'd probably been as a child, but managed to suppress, but then also discovered that that was one insight. But the second was actually almost all of climate change is comprehensible to a layperson. And so I realized there was a kind of awareness, vocabulary, and skill set that when I dug into climate change, I thought, all right, I'm going to have to get, I'm going to have to spend a lot of time with experts to have any chance. Back to being an engineer? Back to being an engineer. So I, had, I was actually simultaneously doing a bunch of work on big data. So for that, I was in Silicon Valley with people. I was trying to understand the structure of databases. It was hard work. Almost everything I learned in climate was intuitive. Like warmer air holds more moisture. So here's a good example. Every one degree C with warmer air, warmer air gets, it can hold 7% more moisture. Well, that compounds. So it means 10% warmer, 10 degree warmer air can hold 100% more water. That's why warm places can be more humid. That's why warm days can have more rain. That's a little insight about the relation that I sort of intuitively had, but I, couldn't, I wouldn't have called it literacy. And so what I mean by climate literacy is this idea that you start to be able to navigate the physical world you took for granted in a way that's got some clarity to it, some, the right words for it. I actually had this moment talking to a scientist in, uh, in Los Angeles who said, I can use all my words with you. And I said, actually, you know, your words, they aren't that abstract. So this, I'll give the last example I'll give of this is the term albedo. It's a technical term, not many people know it. All it means is the reflectiveness of the ground. So if albedo is, is one, the sunlight, all the sunlight is absorbed. If the albedo is zero, all the sunlight is, is reflected back to space. So ice has a very, uh, actually I've got it backwards. Ice has a very high albedo, it's highly reflective. The ocean has a very low albedo, it's highly absorptive. So when there's less sea ice, the earth takes in more energy. That's like eighth grade science. And so what we say, my, my colleagues and I call climate literacy is giving that facility to make climate change understandable and you can bring it into your everyday conversation, but you can also bring it into real, real decisions. Now, it, the issue of water yeah. and how much water it holds, I would assume that has incidence on the probability of water events and, and on the magnitude. Yeah. Um, now, that's on one level very intuitive. It's very, you know, a child should know about this. On the other hand, um, to what extent was it incorporated in the macro models or other type of models that you were conversant with or working with in asset management back then? Not was it there? No, not at all. I, and I'll give a good example of how I now understand this better and how that matters. So a drought is not just about rainfall. It's also about evaporation. So a place can enter a drought with steady rainfall if what happens is it gets warmer over time and more moisture is sucked out of the plants and the, the soil and transported away. And so models of 
you know, the idea of where would there be a drought, where would there be lower in, you know, production, even things like um, the, how power systems would work. Almost all the power systems in the world require water to cool the facilities. Well, water availability is inversely related to heat. And the water that is used to cool those buildings gets warmer when it's warmer outside. So you actually need more water to do the same cooling. Those kinds of things, once you explain them, you're like, oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that. They were not in any of these models. That's super interesting. I, uh, thinking about all the water that needs to, to be used to cool um, crypto miners, or these days AI models, which are very computational intensive, that's becoming more and more part of the yeah. day life conversation for, for most of us. So what, what are the frameworks that, that, that your organization develops out there, frameworks for thinking about this issue? How does that work out for the rest of us? Sure, so the, the, the key insight of all of this, and it was crystallized in a conversation I had with a, a, a great climate scientist uh, one day in the probably seven years ago or so, is that there's a reason we all stopped talking about climate, which was that it was so stable. And so climate stability allowed us to stop thinking about it. There's a reason it wasn't incorporated in our models. There's a reason it wasn't incorporated in our daily lives, which was that the ranges of outcomes were predictable. So in financial terms, starting about 9,500 BCE, so for about 12,000 years, climate volatility was extraordinarily low. Well, when something becomes very low volatility, people start making assumptions. And so the main framework we offer is that for 12,000 years, the climate was stable, and especially during the formation of what we would call modern civilization, the climate was stable. And leaving that stability is not just about warmer temperatures. It's about actually going from a period where you didn't have to incorporate it because it was unchanged, so in statistical terms, it was a stationary distribution, to being unstationary, non-stationary. That change is a framework that needs to be incorporated lots of places. So the two pieces of that are, one, that stability underpins everything. So you and I are sitting in Manhattan. I'm looking out a window at one building. You can see a window out of a window at another building, and we're in a third building. All of these buildings were built with the same building codes. Those building codes all assumed a certain climate. Those building codes are now outdated. They could have been fine for hundreds and hundreds of years. That's why we use the term one in a hundred year storm. If you knew the past, you knew the future. That's what stationarity is. So the, the first building block is understand that stability is what created civilization. And then the second is that stability was embodied in our institutions in the form of assumptions. The people who built these buildings didn't need climate people because the building codes just told them the ranges. The storm sewers that run underneath these buildings were built for ranges. We're now out of range. And so that's a framework that I'm hopeful that people who work in finance can understand is you had a distribution that was very stable, so stable that you could actually just assume it. And now this distribution has shifted, but you have huge amounts of models, frameworks, infrastructures, assumptions that are still assuming were in the past. And you gotta look around and say, well, what do I need to update? Does that it, make sense? It, it, it does to me. Uh, many of us thinking of what went wrong in the great um, 
recession uh, that we had in 2007, um, there was a lot of this story going around, not specifically on climate, but all the models that most people used to gauge the level of risk were assuming something that was very stable, right. which was, in that case, housing prices. Now we have, and, and, and then we had a crisis because our models just didn't compute, uh, and something that was thought out to be highly extreme, well, it just happened. And we're, I, I, many of us feel that we are the proverbial frog in the boiling water that, that see that this somehow, into, in an intuitive sense, sense that the, that distribution yeah. is changing and perhaps in, uh, in many ways, um, but and yet we have the models and our frameworks to catch up with. So, uh, let me ask you: in, in your experience, um, going back to your um, research analyst, investor, economist hat, uh, to what extent do the frameworks that that you are um, ideating and translating is this being adopted by the industry? Are, are people there, or is the overarching conversation about the politics of all this sort of overshadowing the science behind it? It's a great question. Um, no, we're a long ways from there. We're not anywhere near there. But things are changing. Um, you, know, you and I are speaking at a climate risk and returns conference. That was inconceivable 10 years ago. Probably not, I don't know for sure, but I'd be surprised if it existed in, if you called it this five years ago. And so that's a sign of change. And what's interesting is you could go to a conference 10 years ago that was about sustainability. Almost everything that happened at those conferences was just about counting carbon, was emissions of some kind, and there would be vendors of data who may or may not have had insight about emissions, may or may not have, they're often making claims about how it would boost your returns, but it was rarely in the context of risk. And it actually very rarely was about climate change. It was well, actually what, what about, was it about? It was about this is a new form of returns. It was this argument of your returns will go up, not your risk will go down. It was like, trust us, if you do this thing, you follow this new, and, and often the evidence wasn't there because even not that long ago, we weren't very, 10 years ago, the climate had changed less than it's changed today. And what we see is that each bit more it changes, there's nonlinearity in how extreme the changes are because the tails keep moving. And so my point is we've made a lot of progress in terms of the awareness that in your frog analogy, hmm, we might be frogs. What we haven't done is the frog didn't have the proverbial frog, because my understanding is that uh, I really, do you know the story of lemmings also? I think so I do, but if, my if you understanding can is that, rephrase it for the audience. So yeah. the, there are two apocryphal stories about humans where they compare themselves to animals who act foolishly. The first is the frog that sits in water that's heated up and it never jumps out all the way up to boiling, it just dies. The second is lemmings that throw themselves en masse over cliffs out of a form of madness. My understanding is both of these stories were actually invented by humans. And in the case of the lemmings, there's video of it. 
They were pushed by people. Huh, I didn't know that. And it's a case where humans are seeking an apocryphal story about themselves and want there to be a story where in the natural world other animals do this. <laughs> Lemmings don't throw themselves en masse off of ledges, off of cliffs, unless they're corralled and pushed to do so to suit a human narrative. That, that is fascinating. I, I wasn't aware of that. We were anthropomorphizing, uh, if that's a word, yeah. uh, those animals. And we're anthropomorphizing them because we're aware of the things we can do. But we want to have an analogy that's like, it's not just us. But actually, there isn't a good analogy for those things in the natural world. These are stories we tell ourselves. And so the lemming story is, you know, for a finance audience, it's like a Minsky moment. But it doesn't look like the natural world has Minsky moments. It's instead that humans create these stories for themselves that can get them all out of balance. And so what I would say is people are now aware, but what's very different and exciting about climate change in this regard and why probable futures is what it is, is that unlike the frog, we actually know a lot about what's coming. The frog isn't told it's getting warmer. It's going to get warmer. And it's not told what the consequences are. But climate models, I started doing this work in earnest because I started looking at those early models from the 70s and 80s and was astonished to see how right they were, how accurate they'd been for 40 years. In fact, the first email about climate change that I sent to my colleagues uh, 10 years ago was just called unused models. And the beginning of the email had graphs from early science papers projecting temperature, sea level, other things like that, and showing how well, they had fan charts, showing how well the data had done over the ensuing 40 years. But I stripped off what the variables, I didn't tell people what the graphs were of. And I just said, I've got models, they predict the future, they've done really well for 40 years, do you want to use them? Okay. Because by that time, I was well aware that people were using carry models, price to growth model, like all kinds of financial models that rarely work. And those models that work, were they mainstream science? They're or? totally mainstream science. Huh. So it's an adoption issue. It's just an adoption issue. Interesting, interesting. And so what Probable Futures provides on our platform is taking models that were made at research labs around the world, pulling them together, so you can see for this place, for any place that people live at a high resolution. Here's what the weather was. Here's what the weather was. So we have 0.5 degrees C relative to the 19, 1850 to 1900 baseline. So 0.5 degrees. That's the late 20th century, 1971 to 2000. One degree C. That's about 2017. We're at about 1.2 now. So we show 1.5. So we have 0.5, 1, 1.5. We can show two, two and a half, three, we're not frogs. We can actually see what it will be like at three degrees C. And we have the controls on the knobs. Right. And so what hasn't happened is the incorporation of those models that show us these distributions, that show us what is likely into anything else, really. Anything else. So Build, the building codes, the building of the sewer system, real estate models. All those things. 
You know, in the in the area of finance and financial regulation, there's a an institution in the U.S. called the Community Reinvestment Act, yep. uh, where, loosely speaking, banks get review when they do a merger or an acquisition, and one of the factors uh, for approval or disapproval is the impact that will have in, in local communities, um, and that's due um, largely because of discriminatory pricing issues uh, on mortgage, mortgage lending traditionally, but that has been basically extended. Um, and one of the interesting places, uh, of all places, I saw an interesting uh, climate model to gauge um, basically the, the influence that a merger could have on particular uh, populations and heat maps being used on a zip code level, trying to predict um, basically the impact of climate uh, issues on certain populations. And that's done in a quantifiable way that, uh, by um, uh, Michela Santa, uh, who uh, um, studies uh, this area. But that's a tiny example of that. Now, uh, that's what I've seen, and it's still in very early proposal stages. But are there other places in the interface of society, financial regulation that could have an impact yeah. in, in the environment? Yes, uh, for sure. So um, you see already in TCFD and other sort of proposals, some of these documents are very long, right? There's lots of writing about them, writing in them. So in emissions, we have scope one, scope two, scope three, you have already fights over those things. But if you look in those documents at the physical climate risk portion, it's just a small amount of suggestive language. Okay. And that's where the growth needs to be. And one of the reasons for me to agree to spend time with you, to come to the CFA Institute uh, uh, event and speak, is that what I'm worried about is that there will be this rush to have scores, that this part of Manhattan or some part of Illinois or some part of India or some part of Senegal will just have a score assigned to it that's either good or bad or what we actually need is score a process. Of that, of score of what? Exactly. Well, I'm going to talk, about, talk okay. it through. Yeah. It's a bad climate place or it's a dangerous climate place or it's a risky climate place or it's a safe climate place. So you can see some of this, and I don't, I don't think these are wrong necessarily. They're, they're interesting ways to incorporate it, but you have now some amount of data about flood risk that's incorporated with a, a flood score. And there's an institution that I admire and think is doing good, good work called the First Street Foundation that provide, use some of the same data that we do, puts that into climate, into uh, sea level rise and flooding models, and says how where is there flooding risk in real estate? And how will that change over time? And the level of water is a single quantifiable thing, but climate's pretty multivariate. And so one place is hot might not be the same as other places hot. So drought is a good example. Drought is a locally defined variable. A drought in Kansas is not the same as a drought even in Montana because 
in each place, there's a water balance. There's a pattern of, of heat and humidity and rainfall that was stable for so long that all the vegetation, all the buildings, all those things are acculturated and attuned to a past climate that's now shifting. What I think we need is process to say, all right, we can see how these are likely changing. Let's examine in each of these places, what are the risks? So we need a risk process more than a single risk metric. And so I think we need a way to audit risk. And so what I hope happens is not that we quickly turn it into a score, but that what happens in TCFD and things like that is a suggested process that says, here are the kinds of questions to ask. Here are the data available. And what people may find is that after they've done a process like that, they're actually in good shape. They also may find they have a very specific kind of crisis brewing, but that is quite addressable. In other cases, they might find we have an existential question here, but it's going to be different for each place and best understood by a local community, not by a central single data provider just providing. So we are a central single data provider that all it does is provide global models that have been downscaled in a thoughtful regional way that tell you that the weather here in Manhattan is going to be a little different actually than the weather in Short Hills, that it's going to be a little different than the weather in you know, Stanford. And the changes are also going to be different. But what it means for here versus New Jersey versus Connecticut, the people in those places need to assess for themselves, or the people who are considering moving there, or the people who are considering putting capital there. So I'll give you a, a really good example. We had a conversation with a, a city on the south side of, uh, south shore of Massachusetts, New Bedford, which used to be the whaling capital and twice was the richest city in the world. And uh, local officials there uh, spent time with us and um, there were two variables that mattered a lot to them. Number of snowy days, because it's a, been a cold place, but it's getting warmer and it's on the ocean. And so it's somewhat temperate. And what happens is snowy days just kind of go away. But they maintain an entire snowplow infrastructure. It's expensive. But what they also know is that the distribution is changing in such a way that giant blizzards, because of Arctic air coming down, are, still, are actually increasingly at risk. So the risk of a ton of snow is not going down. But the chances of two or three inches of snow is going down very predictably and quite a lot. So do they take apart, they dismantle, they cancel their regular snow service and build an emergency snow plan and otherwise not deal with it? That's a big change programmatically. But it's a very coherent decision. And so you could imagine a plan that's actually extremely cheap where you say, we're not going to prepare for two inches of snow because it happens too infrequently. And when we get 12 inches of snow, we'll contract for emergency services, but we'll just be ready to say the city is closed we for stop. a while. We just we stop. stop. Right. Because you know what else? We also know it's going to be, there are so many warm days that snow doesn't hang around anymore the way it used to. And so that's a, that's, you, you move 30 miles north from there, it's a different decision. That's what I mean by the science has been so accurate, is that it's not only gotten global temperatures right on average, 
But the models that got global temperatures right, they predict weather. Now, they don't predict it day to day, but they give you these ranges. So the second thing the people in New Bedford were interested in was the weather, the changes in Guatemala. Guatemala? Yes. Wow, what is that? <laughs> so when people migrate from one country to another, they tend to go to the places that their relatives, friends, predecessors went to. There's chain migration, and New Bedford is a place where people from Guatemala tend to go. They want to be able to anticipate in migration. And if it's very hot in Guatemala, if there's flooded in Guatemala, there they show up over there. That's very interesting. Now, um, these models clearly have a, um, a lot of purchase for at the local level, yep. like that. And, and perhaps at a federal level, you can, you can see that. Um, Moving to the, the corporate world yep. um, uh, and perhaps the world of financial institutions, what could be the ways that these models could inform their own risk assessment, um, also illuminate opportunities sure. uh, that might come from these changes in, in distributions? Um, because we know that that a lot of folks out there mean well in what they do, they have a plan, uh, but many times it doesn't quite translate in how you engage in planning, uh, risk sure. uh, processes, or even the accounting of assets that might be impaired uh, because of uh, this uh, change in distribution. So ha has this been um, used by the private sector? Uh, Somewhat. It's starting, and there have been some real leaders in the area trying to push it. Um, and uh, I think that there are a couple things. I, I do think that uh, it's apt that we're, as I say, here in Manhattan in a tall building. Finance has been centralized so much that this is a real challenge, that finance is often not got a location anymore. This is a problem of two things, location and duration. If you are making a decision for the next two weeks, climate doesn't matter that much. If you're making a decision for five years, it matters quite a lot. If you're making a decision for 30 years, it's super important. And so in the finance community, in the business community, the first place this really needs to be embraced is where long-term decisions are made. And so I, Tradable finance has a role to play, but really lending and making long-term investments is bigger. I think one window into this is seeing how, I think, poorly people understand insurance. We're talking about risk. There's an idea in economics that does an enormous amount of work on economic models that most people don't see that you can offlay any risk. There's a market for every risk. That's one of the complete market assumptions is there's markets for every kind of risk. It's just not true. So I had a really important conversation, important to me, conversation with uh, somebody who worked at one of the world's biggest reinsurers. Early in this work, it really helped shape my understanding of this. And I asked about how insurance markets were thinking about 
these changes because the people in reinsurance had already embraced these models. That's the industry where these models are already the right. backbone of it. Well, their livelihood depends on it. That's right. Big time. But what's interesting is they're barely used at all in retail insurance. Is it that they are just reselling the risk to this? That's right. Big shots? They assume so, there will be a market for reselling the risk. And the other is that the retail insurers almost all outsourced their catastrophe modeling to other shops. Uh -huh. And so they're not even particularly good consumers of that. I'll give you a, a very real example of this that will, uh, might make you worry a little bit. So when I, I think some, most of this has changed somewhat, but as of not that long ago, four or five years ago, the people who did the risk modeling for insurance companies had separate models for each kind of risk. And those models were uncorrelated. <laughs> okay. And so from the model's perspective, it was a surprise if it was both windy and rainy at the same time. And it was a surprise if there were hurricanes in both Florida and Texas. Yes. Because those were different business lines and each of those business lines had a different product and they only wanted that variable outcome. And so at the big risk modeling firms, those were different departments. Fascinating. That's what sociologist Merton, not the economist, but yes. his father will call sub-goal formation. It's each part of the company coming up with their own goals, risks, and exactly. measures in this case. That's a great term. Huh. And so sub-goal formation can be seen as a product of a stable climate. Because you, like, I don't need to understand the whole thing. Because the whole thing is stable. So in economics terms, I can just do partial equilibrium all the time. <laughs> Okay. I never need to do general equilibrium. And I can specialize. So, so it's a journey from, from people trying to optimize their own uh, part of the business to seeing um, things in a more general way, That's which right. I believe is a big part of what you're doing. Yeah, so, so to finish the story, futures. what the, this reinsurer told me was the first time there's a catastrophic loss in a location, it's an insurance cost, it's an insurance problem. The second time, it might be an insurance problem. But by the third time, it's an equity and debt problem. Because by then the insurer isn't insuring anymore. But then he went on to explain, what people don't understand is that in a catastrophe situation, in almost any situation, all that's insured is the physical structure. And you can't lose on a grade A office building, on a grade A retail uh, or uh, residential property, you can't lose more than 10% generally on, a, on something like that because all you're doing is replacing the windows and demolding the first floor and doing other stuff like that. The land value is not insured. Insurance doesn't cover the most valuable asset, which is the location. And so, it's the people who have made a long-term commitment to a place that can often be quite a lot of money, think they're insured, but all they're insured for is repairing in the same place. They are not insured for the actual value. 
And so that's an example of something where you can bring that in, which is say, what, are we what risks are we insured for? So if you ask, what can we, how can it bring into, into business? You've already said one of the most important things is, it's at a higher level generally. The first place it needs to come in is at the board to ask questions. Do we have a process? Have we thought about these things? I gave a talk in 2019 to a group of, of board members of major endowments and foundations in the United States. And I asked the audience, how many of you at a board meeting have had a conversation, a real like agenda item to talk about civil unrest in the United States? One country invades another country somewhere in the world. The risk of a nuclear explosion. I actually was going to ask about pandemic and I still have my notes. I crossed it off because like, I'll lose them if I say pandemic. A major climate event. And they all said nobody. Nobody had done it. And I said, but you're the board. You're supposed to ask. You're responsible for risk. And the response from the audience was, you're a pessimist. I said, no, I'm not a pessimist. All of these things have meaningful probabilities. I'm not asking them to be your base case. I'm asking if you've had one meeting, if you've had one unpaid intern do a project, if you've asked the question. And overwhelmingly, they said, that's not our job. I said, that's absolutely your job. And so this belongs in oversight. It belongs in the executive suite. And then you figure out where it goes in the organization. Because in some organizations, it'll go different places. So I'm OK with people building a sustainability. But everybody's building a sustainability department without having a conversation at the board or, or C-suite level about what does this mean? What risks are we exposed to? How do we build this into our frameworks? What do we do when there's just more uncertainty? What is non-stationary for us? Fascinating. I, I was checking out a, a study that it's a survey study on, I believe it was the top 50 public issuers in the U.S. and most of them actually now have an ESG subcommittee of the board, so maybe your preaching is, is getting traction out there. I suspect you will be speaking to more boards about how to take this so this seriously. comes back to your first question, which is climate literacy. And what these boards need is they need a little orientation around climate change, not to have an immediate ESG agenda with a whole bunch of checklists. But like, let's step back. Let's understand that a stable climate underpins everything we did before. And let's ask ourselves, maybe look at some maps, get some examples. So I, with the largest bank in the United States that I won't name, had a conversation with the uh, C-suite members, showed them maps, and the response of the key person was, we need to think about our employees. The assumption is that we got to look at our loans. And this person was like, we have tens of thousands of people in this place that's imperiled, and they don't know. They don't really understand. And so is that an HR issue? Is that a strategy issue? I had another prominent finance CEO say, oh, I'm so glad we didn't put, we resisted the urge to go into this country when everybody else did, because look, that country's in bad shape. That country faces very dire consequences. You don't know whether it's a strategy question, an HR question, a, a capital question. 
I think the best analogy for this is that climate is becoming like information and money. It's likely that a lot of these institutions will have a senior person who's got some climate remit. But I'm going to guess that you and I are roughly the same age, somewhere in our 50s. And when we were younger, businesses had a webmaster. There was one person responsible for the internet. But over time, information became part of every decision. These are all information businesses. It shows up everywhere. Climate's going to be like that. It doesn't mean that it will drive every decision, but making decisions ignorant of it will be irresponsible. And so actually, I do think one of the main applications of this data and this work in the near future will be lawsuits, hmm. which is people saying, you were negligent to make a decision without considering these effects. And that's why the senior people are gonna be on the hook for this as a standard of care, which is, you should have known. You can't pretend that it's the same. And so you should have asked this question. And so probablefutures.org is a place to see the data. One of the reasons to do it is to put pressure on people to say, well, it was free, it was out there. You can't claim you didn't know. That's fascinating. I, one way to, to look at what ultimate progress could look like is when this conversation, these risks, these opportunities are already incorporated in how we do business and how market prices, That's right. what they tell us about what's scarce and what's abundant out there. Today, we all know that that's not fully uh, in there. Do you have a final challenge that you want to yeah. uh, give people? Uh, I, I think that one of the, the, the main challenge, and it's a challenge that I think is very hopeful and I think is encouraging, which is we need to make society more resilient. There's a way to look at this. The, Stories about the future are generally bifurcated. Somehow everything works out. We have a lot of electric vehicles and modernist architecture. Or it's Mad Max. But we're going to live in the spaces in between. That's why we called this probable futures. We can't be imagining these things that have super low probability, have zero probability. We're not going back to the climate we had before. We have this space in between that we need to live in and imagine well. So start thinking about how we're going to live well in those ranges. And one of the things about that is we need to start thinking about resiliency and adaptation, not just mitigation. And I say this because there is now momentum around decarbonization, and that's great. But if we do that without making society more resilient, which partly is better regulations, partly is more awareness, partly is just strengthening our civic institutions, just getting better at talking about risk, those are all ways to make us more resilient when things partly go wrong. I, I like this story from Mohammed El-Ari, and you, you brought up the, the financial crisis. He was asked, how did PIMCO get the crisis right? He said, we got it totally wrong. We just prepared for all the outcomes. Their committee assigned only a 5% chance to Lehman going under in a disorderly way but they built a plan for what they would do if that happened. Too much of finance said, that's ah, a low probability. I'm not going to do anything about it. We have these things that are now, they went from a zero probability to five or 10% probability. Those are not low numbers. We need to plan for those things. And I think if we plan for those things, we'll see lots of ways to make society more resilient. And a lot of people can participate. Well, we're uh, 
to the end of the podcast, but uh, thank you so much. Uh, planning for a resilient society. I think that's a theme that will interest most, most people, certainly got my attention. And uh, Dr. Spencer Glendon, thank you so much for your contributions in, uh, to society uh, in, in making us just a little bit more informed uh, so we can do something about this. And thank you for the, your contributions to the finance industry too. Those are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be part of it. And I will give one final pitch, which is check out probablefutures.org. It's not a business, so this isn't marketing, but I think it can be helpful to people. So thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yep. Yeah.